What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts, an evergreen podcasts network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. And we've been doing it for over 150 episodes now, Carrie. It's crazy. More than three years. Of our lives. <laughs> dedicated to... Uh, this body of work, which uh, you know, I was I was looking at the list of episodes, especially preparing for for this episode, and uh, As it spans a lot of topics. Spans a lot of topics, a lot of great episodes in there, and a lot of great episodes in the last uh, fifty. We're gonna touch on some of the uh, best, some of the most beloved tonight. <laughs> mm-hmm. We are recording from the comfort of our bedroom as the uh, palatial Longboy Studios. Palatial? The expansive and impressive Longboy Media. The closet. Longboy Media <laughs> That we repurposed. Is being painted right now. And so, uh, yeah, we're up in the bedroom recording this intro to what you're going to hear, an episode mostly generated by you, our listeners. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, and we're excited to have this little studio that we're trying to organize. Um, we're going to have a whole bookshelf of just our, our spooky and history books, which will be a really cool resource area. Maybe we'll record some more video clips now that we aren't in a basement or a random messy closet it'll be a clean closet now yeah we just have to finish up uh doing a doing a jagger what's a jagger oh we're painting it black oh i should i should have known uh <laughs> i guess we should just get right into it <laughs> okay um so in celebration of three years of doing this show and uh, also in service of doing this episode without having a studio <laughs> studio really to record it in uh, mm -hmm. by the way as always, I'd love feedback on if you can tell. It sounds okay in my headphones, actually. Yeah, let us know how the bed-in goes. It's a pretty insulated room, I think. Well, that was enough dead air to let the listener know. And uh, now... <laughs> I was wondering why you're just staring at the ceiling. <laughs> oh my god, he's stroking out. No, I'm just establishing room tone. Should I tone. call someone? No, I had to establish room tone. Oh. Um, but Carrie... Uh, we are going to kick off our uh, sort of best of the last 50 episodes here um, with a pretty, you know, we're going to start with the most time devoted to an episode uh, requested by 
a listener who went to the trouble of leaving us a voicemail. Another voicemail, in fact. A second mm-hmm. voicemail. If you leave us a voicemail, we, we'll do whatever you ask. <laughs> uh, yeah. So within, we're going to play this whole part. <laughs> and, and I'm sure there are limitations on that, but uh, we're only going to find them as you ask. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, bring it it's on, like I guess. It's like the purge. Crime is legal. Uh, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in Amy's case, we're delighted to hear from you again. Yes, this is our friend who is a housekeeper. Shout out to all the housekeepers out there. You keep people sane, and we thank you for your work. Um, yeah, so we're well, we're it, just it, so happy we can provide entertainment while you do your work and go about your day, and uh, we love being a part of all that. We just love keeping people sane while they do a job. That's uh, how I get through much of my day is uh, a, a good old podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I wish I could, but I write all day, so all the words would get jumbled around in my head. But usually I could play music, and that helps too. Um, anything to get you through. Red Bull, petting the dog momentarily, you know, things like that. Yeah, since my commute has shrunk, my uh, podcast backlog has grown, and uh, it's, it's actually yeah. kind of a bummer. Yeah, and I don't know if also, because we started the show... I mean, a while into COVID times, but we were still mostly at home and we were listening to a lot then. But um, yeah, I can't tell if it's the fact that we have a show now that we listen to a lot less because a lot of that just leisure time is uh, researching and stuff, which we love to do. Um, Or if it's just, yeah, not not commuting anymore. I don't know. But we're trying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Either way, we're we're still bringing you the the same show that we fell in love with doing. Um, hopefully, even better than it was before. Yeah, and uh, thank you to everyone who. Uh, well, we'll get to uh, more of you who suggested episodes and uh, segments and uh, jokes to include in this uh, uh, compilation, but. Uh, First, let's hear from Amy and also hear uh, a little bit about... Well, I don't want to spoil what Amy asked for. Okay. Hi there. Uh, It's Amy, the housekeeper. I actually left you guys a message back when you were covering Charles Manson. Uh, Definitely wanted to call in again uh, with you guys talking about the favorite episodes that you've done. Uh, One of my favorite is definitely the ones that you did uh, over uh, Lizzie Borden. I mean, obviously, everybody's probably heard of Lizzie Borden. But you went into such, like, great detail, and, and, like, I was picturing in my mind, like, every little detail you were going over, so it was so cool, and I just really appreciated that one. You've done a lot of really, really great ones, too, but um, that one was really, really good, and I really appreciated last week uh, that you had about Bloody Mary, how you looked at it from different perspectives, so that was really cool as well. But, yeah, um, great success on the podcast. You guys are doing awesome. I wish you 150, 180, 300 more. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to call in and say love you guys again, and thanks for playing my last voicemail that really like made my day. So I appreciate you. Um, happy Halloween, and trust me, I do understand the Halloween hangover when it's all over, because it's my favorite holiday too. So hope you guys have a great day, and uh, really love your show. Bye. Sometime around this point, Adelaide Churchill looked out her window to see her neighbor, Lizzie Borden, standing just inside the Borden's screen door. 
Adelaide opened up her window and called out, What's the matter? I assume maybe she saw Lizzie's expression or something. Oh, this is just a Mrs. Kravitz. Oh, yeah. She's nosy for sure. Um, Lizzie responded, Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. Okay. So not exactly the invite one would expect for a spontaneous social function. Do come over. (laughs) But it appears Adelaide did go over as the tea was simply too scalding to miss. (laughs) While waiting for the police, Adelaide became the first to put many questions to Lizzie. Where were you? Was first. Lizzie replied that she had been in the barn by the house looking for a piece of iron to make a sinker out of for a fishing line and had returned to the house when she heard a strange noise. Uh, these are the kinds of things I imagine the the idly and uselessly rich doing, I guess. Well, we'll get to it, but I think she was planning on going with a fi- on some sort of fishing trip with friends soon, but I think it was like at least in a week or two. And Lizzie can't buy her own bobbers? She doesn't have much to do, you know? So you might as well just make stuff. What else is she doing, you know? So Adelaide next asked where Abby Borden was at this moment. And Lizzie responded that Abby had received a note from a sick friend and left the home. Two more neighbors arrived on the scene following Lizzie's calls, Dr. Bowen from across the street and Lizzie's close friend, Alice Russell. Dr. Bowen proceeded to examine Andrew, Um, there wasn't much help he could give him. You can still find crime scene photos from the Borden murders, but I have to warn you, Andrews in particular is incredibly graphic. It's like Jack the Ripper level. I was going to say worse or better than, um, the Mary Kelly photo. You just, from the neck up, you, there's, you can't tell anything human there. So it depends on your perspective. Um, he is splayed out on a Victorian-style couch, slumped over. His head is a mess of dark matter and not much else. It's one of those instances where you're grateful for black and white. After emerging from this examination quite shaken, Bowen left to wire Emma Bowden, uh, Borden about the incident, with Emma still being in Fairhaven, visiting friends about 30 miles away. And she had been gone for a couple weeks. She had not stayed at the house or whatever since she'd left. Bridget voiced her concerns about Abby and wanted to ask Abby's half-sister where she might be. Strangely, at this point, Lizzie then said that she thought Abby had actually returned and gone upstairs. This is one of those contradictory statements that Bill James was talking about. Because she had made a statement like a minute before, oh, she's at her sister's, or at her friend's. Yeah, she's, she got a note and she left. So Bridget, Adelaide, and Alice were all taken aback by this because she had just said that Abby had gone out. She hadn't made any mention of her returning, but Adelaide offered to accompany the very reluctant Bridget upstairs, but they barely made it past the entrance to the second floor when from the stairwell, Adelaide caught sight of Mrs. Borden laying on the guest bedroom floor. So it's one of those situations where you go up the stairs and the floor is kind of flush with your head at a certain point. So when you're peeking over the landing, you can see into the rooms nearby. Yeah, so if the door's open on your way up the stairs, you can't help but see the floor of that room. It's quite hard to miss, yeah. Adelaide, um, they rushed back and Alice asked, is there another? To which Alice responded, or Adelaide responded, yes. Lizzie's reaction was, oh, I shall have to go to the cemetery myself. What? 
I assume this is a reference to visiting her father's grave, like... Like, off to go by myself because my stepmother's dead, too? Yes, it's a weird reference to make in the circumstances, absolutely. I don't know what she quite means by that. I mean, people process grief in different ways, Yeah, that's a weird thing to say. Then Knowlton began to prod around the question of her uncle, John Morse. There was some confusion between Knowlton and Lizzie about when and how often Morse had previously visited, um, with her concluding that before he had moved back east from the west a year prior, he had probably visited the Bordens once, but oddly, she did not know whether he has or has not since. Huh. Knowlton, frustrated, asked how many times in the last year since Morse had moved back east has he visited the Borden house? Again, Lizzie replied oddly, not at all to speak of, nothing more than a night or two at a time. That's not... It's not nothing, obviously. So, Knowlton is like... And he's trying He's he's trying to be more specific. Okay. No, no more than a night or two at a time. Okay. How many nights total? Yes. How often does he come to spend a night or two? Lizzie stymied him once more. Really? I don't know. I'm away so much myself. Just Where? Answer, answer the question to the best of your abilities. How many fishing trips are you going on also? Well, I, she doesn't have much to do. And, you know, she doesn't have much to do except for go on random fishing trips with friends. With additional prodding, she added, I have not been away the last year so much, but other times I have been away when he has been here. Oh, okay. Oh, hold on. So in the last year, though, how many times has he come over? I don't know. I've been away. Well, but not in the last year, though, so... Yeah, it's like that. Finally, Knowlton got Lizzie to estimate that Morse had likely visited at least one other time before his move back east. So there's like this 14-year period where he's living in the West and he visits a couple times. But when asked what he did at the house, when he did visit within the past year, Lizzie again was vague. I am away a great deal in the daytime, occasionally at night. So she couldn't give a straight answer. Say he hung out with dad, I think. I wasn't really there. Exactly. Lizzie further stated she knew he was at at the home uh, visiting the day of the murders because she'd heard his voice downstairs the day previously, but she didn't physically run into him either day because she was out visiting her friend Alice Russell on the Wednesday night until about 9 p.m. And she didn't see him in person the next morning before he left the house. Morse, uh, for what it's worth, told the inquest in his own testimony that actually he had visited the Bordens while he was in the West in 1865, 1876, 1878, and 1885, and once stayed for an entire year. Well, I was away for a lot of that year. (laughs) So it's like he's a pain in the ass house guest and you don't remember your uncle stayed with you for a year? A year! especially since the bedroom he stayed in was right next to hers. I think there was one time before he moved back out that Uh he came to stay. For a year. (laughs) I mean, are you going to tell me that Lizzie has like some kind of a a horrific memory condition? I don't know. Or maybe she's very, very socially awkward. Knowlton, referencing some background information he had, asked Lizzie why she had canceled her plans to join a group of friends who left on a trip for Marion, earlier in the week um, 
of the murders. Let me guess. She said she doesn't really like to travel. (laughs) Well, if she had gone on the trip, she would have been away on August 4th. So why did she have a change of heart early that week? Lizzie responded that she decided to wait until the next Monday to leave because as secretary treasurer of the Christian Endeavor Society, she had to attend a meeting that upcoming Sunday because there's no way they could have possibly moved on without her. Without Lizzie, she's obviously such a great speaker. Well, she's a secretary treasurer, Sean, put some respect on her title. Uh, Lizzie stated that she had written to one of the members of the friend's trip earlier that week to let them know that she would be a week late but apparently fearing being caught up in the sensational story, the recipient had since burned the correspondence. Wow, so many notes being burned mm-hmm. in this story. So again, maybe it's not weird that Morse did that because he's not the only one that did that. Well, no, maybe. Unless they're all involved. Um, the recipient, who I believe was one Elizabeth Johnson, was questioned by police about the letter, but weirdly responded, I have said all I think I should about the letter. And none of the other women on the friend's trip would even speak to police. Well, that is weird. Mm -hmm. Knowlton then moved on uh, to the timeline of events Lizzie had recounted for the morning of August 4th. Lizzie stated that in the earlier part of the morning, she was ironing her her handkerchiefs and reading Harper's Magazine and the Providence Journal. Around the time Andrew left the house that morning, said Lizzie, Abby had gone upstairs to freshen up. And she hadn't seen her since. Explain ironing handkerchiefs to me. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have a crazy social life. And her friends are already away. But this is a piece of fabric that is made to go into your pocket and then to catch snot coming out of your face, right? Well, they were washed and now they need to be ironed, Sean. Lest they be wrinkled. <laughs> Lizzie reckoned that Abby was going to switch out the shams on the guest bed since Addie, Abby was intending on having company Monday and wanted everything in order. When asked by Knowlton, what explanation can you suggest as to what Abby was doing from the time she said she got all the work done in the spare room until 11 o'clock? Lizzie had no answer. And contrary to Bridget's testimony, Lizzie said that she herself was actually downstairs when Andrew came home then contradicted herself a few minutes later, stating that she was upstairs when he returned, but she had only been upstairs for a few minutes. Hmm. Knowlton, likely wanting to seize on this discrepancy like a monkey on a cupcake, as my dad would say, uh, nonetheless showed restraint in his response. You remember, Miss Borden, I will call your attention to it so as to see if I have any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you. But you remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. Lizzie didn't even flinch. I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions and I am so confused. I don't know one thing from the other. If I was Knowlton and not even speaking to whether I think she did this or not. But if I was him, I would be like going batty right now with how frustrating she was being. Yeah, uh, you'd probably be just as frustrated if you were her defense attorney. Oh, absolutely. Eventually, Lizzie would state again that she thought she was downstairs when her father got back home. She seemed to stick with that. The inquest paused about there and resumed the next day. Knowlton immediately returned back to Lizzie's timeline, wanting to pin the specifics down. Lizzie stated that before Andrew had left that morning, she had seen him in the sitting room and Abby in the dining room. Referring to their bout of food poisoning the previous day, Lizzie asked Abby how she was feeling, who then responded, 
Abby did, that she was going out and would get their dinner. Well, so wait, but so she didn't answer the question. Uh, yep. Yeah. Lizzie then went into the kitchen and down to the cellar to retrieve clean clothes. And when she went back upstairs through the main floor, Andrew had been reading the paper. On this day, unlike the previous, Lizzie stuck to the story that she had been downstairs all morning, except when she quickly went upstairs to baste a piece of tape on a dress, which I'm sure makes sense for the time. But I don't know what that means. Well, you have to uh, ladle it with some some good some salt and some good. Uh, I have you no know, idea what s- baste some, some tape on a dress. Knowlton, at this point, had had it with her flip flopping, asking, "Do you remember you did not?" Say that yesterday. (laughs) Lizzie, again, was cool as a cucumber. I don't think you asked me. I told you yesterday I went upstairs directly after I came up from down cellar with clean clothes. Again, she's like, uh, she's a gaslight queen at this point. Just, but what are, what are we supposed to make of this? Maybe she's she's like the KGB. This is just it's 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 not dis it's not misinformation. It's disinformation. Yeah, it's just like put answering so much, questions with questions type of thing. Put so much bullshit out there that no one has any idea what's going on with Lizzie. <laughs> Exasperated, Knowlton continued, Miss Borden, I am trying in good faith to get all the doings that morning of yourself and Miss Sullivan, and I have not succeeded in doing it. Do you desire to give me any information or not? (laughs) Lizzie, finally a bit flustered, replied that she could not give him information she didn't have, adding, I don't even know what your name is. (laughs) (laughs) But in summation of her given timeline of the earlier part of the morning as the trial of Lizzie Borden notes, quote, Lizzie placed herself in the center of the house in the best position not only to see any theoretical intruder, but also to observe Abby's movements or lack thereof. Lizzie's account about the second period of the morning, that relating to her father and his time of death, was also a seesaw of confusion between her and Knowlton. Shortly after Andrew returned to the house, whether she was or was not at the top of the stairs when he did, we don't know. Mm Lizzie said that she decided to go to the barn to get a sinker for fishing in advance of the girl's trip she still planned on joining the upcoming Monday. Incredulous, Knowlton asked, It occurred to you after your father came in it would be a good time to go to the barn to get sinkers? (laughs) Knowlton followed up with even more questions. Did she have a hook or fishing line? If there was fishing line at the family farm, as she'd mentioned, wouldn't the sinkers have been there as well and not in the barn? Lizzie's answer was ready. There were lines and perhaps hooks at the farm, but I did not say I thought there were sinkers on my lines. Mm -hmm. She knew there was lead in the barn and planned to use that to fashion some sinkers DIY style. On her way from the house to the barn, she also stopped under the pear tree for some pears. Then she proceeded onto the upper part of the barn for the lead. Knowlton. You went to the second story of the barn to look for sinkers for lines you had at the farm, as you supposed, as you had seen them there five years before that time? Mm -hmm. Lizzie, I did not intend to go to the farm for lines. I was going to buy some lines there. There meaning on the trip. So she wasn't going to the farm at all. That's why she did what she did. Knowlton, what was the use of telling me a while ago you had no sinkers on your line at the farm? (laughs) I could literally see his face just turning red, trying to keep track of all of this. 
Knowlton stated that the search for lead could have at most only taken a few minutes, and Lizzie responded that she went over to the west window of the barn, straightened its curtain, and ate her pears while this, she was there. This girl has been eating lead her whole life, I think. <laughs> Knowlton, do you mean to stay do you mean to say you stopped your work and sat still and ate your pears? Referencing something Lizzie had said earlier about telling Abby she didn't feel well enough to have dinner that night due to the gastric distress she'd recently experienced, Knowlton argued, You were feeling better than you did in the morning, well enough to eat pears, but not enough to eat anything for dinner that night? You have put yourself in the only place, perhaps, where it would be impossible for you to see a person going into the house. So obviously he's saying it's like, this is suspicious. Yep. Hey, creepy people. This is PNW Haunts and Homicides. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Cassie. Together, we explore stories of the paranormal and true crime throughout the Pacific Northwest. For each episode, we do a tarot reading to help us gain some insight on the topic as we share the facts of the case and our interpretations. You can find our episodes featuring true stories from infamous cases such as the misdeeds of Boeing, as well as lesser-known true crime cases like the murders in Tunnel 13. As well as our spooky stories from Pike Place and Raven's Manor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you'd like to listen. Have Have a a creepy-ass day! Welcome back, and thank you again to Amy for uh, another voicemail. I'm really uh, heartwarmed and humbled. (laughs) Absolutely, and if anyone would like to leave us a voicemail, ideally with um, positive words. I mean, you know, if you'd like us to play it on the show, if you want to rip us a new one, that would be an experience. But the uh, number is 203-666-5529. It's a Google voice number. So you'll, you don't have to worry about us like picking up and making things anxiety inducing. Just call right into the voicemail, leave a message as you please. Um, if you don't want us to play it, that's cool. Just let us know. But yeah, we'd love to respond to any questions, comments anyone has on the show, things like that. Yeah, and in that case, uh, we played a, an extra long clip from the Lizzie Borden episode there, or episodes, uh, from a couple of the episodes. Not only because Amy took the trouble to leave a, a voicemail, but also because uh, I, she specifically called out, and I think correctly, uh, Carrie, your attention to detail in that episode, and uh, I wanted to, I wanted to capture that in the clip. And then, I mean that, uh, not Inquisition. What's the uh, what's the word? Inquest. That inquest just seen. Yeah, I mean she's the gaslight queen, and that was some of the funnest stuff to relay to you because you're giving sort of the audience perspective how it was at the court, which is like, well, girl, what are you saying? Like, is it this or is it this? And that was also like, that's why that series ended up being as long as it was. Cause you were like, well, I can't just, I can't just do the trial. I have to start with the inquest. Cause the, yeah. cause a lot of the best stuff is the blow by blow aggravating conversation yes. of this inquest. And it's all set. It sets up a lot of the stuff in the trial. So, um, yeah, I had to include it. Um, well, thank you for, for doing it. <laughs> You're so, welcome. So uh, we've got some more clips in the back half uh, from both you and uh, from us. 
And uh, <laughs> so, Carrie, what do we have coming up? Yeah, so uh, we'll have our friend and new Patreon subscriber, which we'll get to those thank yous at the end of the show. But Pete, um, he sent us a message mentioning one of his favorite clips. And he had actually said to us when we met at one of our presentations that he loved the Indianapolis episode. And in his message, he specified that he really loved this part <laughs> where you... Well, don't spoil. Don't spoil Eclipse. We, where we talk about Titanic. Yeah. That that works. Yeah. And then um, after that, we had a lot of requests uh, when we put these feelers out for Jeff the Talking Mongoose. Jeff! <laughs> I'm Jeff! Um, people loved Jeff. Even people who didn't respond necessarily to this call have mentioned that they are they love that episode or they love Jeff. Uh, my friend Mickey, is uh, he was like obsessed with Jeff. Um, so we had to include some good Jeff moments. And, and weirdly, two of our impressions or characters, I guess, I don't think they're really impressions. I've never heard a talking mongoose, so I don't know what they sound like. It, it, yeah, and, and, and you're also <laughs> referring to my Manson, which I don't think sounds particularly like Charles Manson. It so. sounds like his, it sounds like a caricature of him, and that's that's what it, what it needed to be. But it's funny how both of those, it, it is, spoiler alert, were um, requests from multiple listeners. <laughs> don't you assume that's what Charles Manson's ghost sounds like? Absolutely. Hey, I'm behind you. Yeah. Your furniture. Boo. <laughs> Rattle your chains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, specifically, our friends Theo and Kate uh, also had requested Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And Kate specifically also mentioned Charlie Manson. So after a couple of clips from the Jeff episode, we have a couple of clips from a couple episodes of the Charlie Manson series where you were just having a ball being Charlie. We really had to shake you out of that one. It was becoming a Marlon Brando situation. You know, it's a hard thing to get into and to get out of, just <laughs> saying sentences that don't make sense at the end of them. Sure. Uh, you were particularly good at it. So... Well, uh, uh, thanks. <laughs> it's probably because my brain Because broke. you're a mess. Um, and then at the very end, we'll have a few clips that are our personal favorites. Mine was from our second year of doing a crossover with Adam and Christina from New York Mystery Machine. We always have a lot of fun with them. This year, we talked about Bigfoot, both on their show and on our show. So we have a clip from our show. And um, I also included a clip from our Midsummer Night Scream, where we just kind of shot the shit about horror and, and had a lot of fun on that, uh, where I had to <laughs> explain some Twilight lore to you um, <laughs> to the best of my yeah, abilities. A very particular piece of Twilight lore, yeah. And, um, and that was just very fun and funny. And uh, and yours is at the end here, and I don't know what clip you chose. It's a surprise for me. Oh, I I went with just uh, some Jack, some good old fashioned Jack the Ripper mm. uh, uh, suspect analysis. 
And uh, when you get a lot to of the, British accents, I'm sure. When you get to the end of the suspect list, well, I included the dear boss letter oh, reading uh, just so there is a little bit of uh, uh, bad Cockney in there. But uh, when you get into the bat, the bottom of that Jack the Ripper suspect list, there's some, and it's a bottom, all right. There's some real fun. There's some character. I don't know if they're fun. There's some characters in there. So, sure. uh, so I included a, a little chunk of our Jack the Ripper, which. Uh, Another great piece of carry research, one of my favorite series, and, and and I wanted to reach back to the to the beginning of this block, the yeah. uh, the way we kicked off our hundredth series, and now we're we're another year in. It's crazy. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and uh, we will look to top it again. Well, the Titanic's been since then, right? Yeah, we could have included stuff from that in 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 Ocean Gate's been since then. It's a it's been a crazy year. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Well, that was a real life. Yes, that yes. actually happened. The Titanic actually happened, Sean. Are you a conspiracy theorist too? Yeah, I'm a Titanic denier. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it, James Cameron. It's all a big. Uh, it's a uh, a big film conspiracy. Mm. Big Hollywood. It's a ruse. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get into some of the fan clips and then our faves. And we'll come back at you at the end for our usual thank yous and such. Yes, you will uh, sometimes be alerted to the end of a clip and the, the beginning of a new clip with a little musical sting. Uh, you know what our theme sounds like. I didn't want it to get too grating, so sometimes you'll just hear uh, Poe. You'll just hear a, a, little, a little bark between the clips. There's nothing less grating than a barking dog. Well, yeah, just don't be alarmed by it. We never are. We hear it. Constantly. Yeah, we hear quite a bit, so uh, so enjoy. There were 1,100 men, 1,162 I think is the number, uh, when the torpedoes hit. Um, there are dozens of men jumping off the bow, taking swan dives, some of them hitting the propellers, which are still powered and spinning. Oh, God. And just being sent, not chopped up, but just kunk, just sent spinning off into space. Uh, one so it's guy. not as fun and whimsical as that one guy in Titanic. I don't know if only you find that fun and whimsical. A lot of people think that's a really, I mean, listen, it's horrifying, but it's the way it's filled, the foley, the foley, the little ding. It's just, it's it's like when she throws the, the necklace and she goes, ah, ah. like, it's just, mm, did we need the little zhuzh to it I to do, make it a little more ridiculous? I do like when the steam pipe falls on Fabrizio. That's a nice... That's because you hate Italians. Wait a second. <laughs> I can't be accused of that. Um, as for the vacuum tunnel, Carrie, one guy did say he felt himself yanked down. His shoe was pulled off like someone was yanking on his foot. And then he was sucked down, wearing a life vest, sucked down to a depth where the pressure felt like it was going to blow his eyes and ears <sighs> out of his head. I wonder, because of... The construction, I assume it was a smaller ship than Titanic. Maybe that's even worse because it's more of like a concentrated suction. Could be. I don't know. I'm making that up. It, I didn't do well in science, but I, you know. It's a warship. Maybe it's denser. Yeah, the maybe. guns and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was sucked down and then an air bubble. He like said he owed his life to this air bubble that randomly formed around him and sucked him back to the top in, a, wow. in a, all in a rush and shot him three feet out of the water's surface. Wow. And as he looked around, as he landed back in the water, the ocean everywhere 
was coated with two inches of oil from the sinking ship. Um, so the reporter decides to leave because he's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm out. Well, this guy's been yelling at the walls for five <laughs> yes. minutes now. But just after exiting the home, James called him back in saying, it started. James and the reporter snuck to the open door where they heard a sound described as a peculiar peculiar voice pitched more than an octave above the highest human voice, like the sound of a weasel's scream. Margaret Irving, not realizing the reporter had returned, told Jeff, the gentleman has gone now. However, an eerie shriek responded, he has not. He has not. (laughs) He has, replied Margaret. He has not. (laughs) But then the voice said, I can hear him whispering. And then, I won't talk for these people. They are all liars. James confessed to the reporter that he was anxious the story was ruining his chances of selling the farm. And uh, that the idea that 13-year-old Vari was a ventriloquist voicing Jeff herself was ridiculous. And apparently that was something that had been brought up by some articles. Yeah, of course it was. (laughs) Arriving home, Mr. Irving told his wife about the meeting. Jeff, at the time, was called Jack. He apparently listened to the conversation for a little while, and then he called out, I don't like the name Jack. Call me Jeff. Uh. And apparently, the creature was only able to spell phonetically, so they spelled J-E-F-F as G-E-F. G is more often a hard letter, if anything. Why would it be G-E-F? I don't know. What's more phonetic than J-E-F-F? I don't know. Jeff! He's not that literate. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) Initially, as mentioned, the Irvings were afraid of the entity, which tended to mock them in the early months. Quote, if I sat up in bed in the dark, Jeff shouted, Lie down, you devil! I had to go out in the open into the lavatory outside the house, for Jeff was shouting out loudly what I was doing. He said he was going to tell everybody. I was afraid in those days that he may throw a knife at me. Remember when uh, uh, Marcia's cat in the Lindley Street Poltergeist would go like, Get out of here, you sailor, you mm-hmm. dirty Greek. Mm-hmm. And disliked Greeks for some reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff himself would be prone to swearing. Small stones would often pelt James in the back of the head, neck, ears, shoulders, whatever, all accompanied by Jeff's taunts and laughter. James once attempted it to uh, scare the creature away with his gun, but it vanished before he could shoot at it. Young Vari became the focus of Jeff's attention, so much so that James and Margaret eventually moved her bed into their bedroom in an attempt to protect her better. Okay, this is this whole plan is backfiring on Vari here. Well, once completed, the move apparently enraged Jeff enough to scream, I'll follow her wherever you move her. Sometime in the spring of 1932, the family and their hostile visitor eventually were able to agree to some kind of truce. Living with Jeff became the norm. He was quite chatty, loved to sing, and especially loved to eat. He adored bacon without the fat, oranges, sweets, biscuits, and all sorts of comfort food. Okay, when they're feeding Jeff, are we leaving cookies out for Santa Claus? or I think are it's we- a combination. I think sometimes they see him and sometimes they leave it out and then it's gone. Sure. Because they all said they saw him, like, many times. But he's not always around, visually. Um, He would even overindulge at times. In April, James was awakened at 5 a.m. by Jeff calling out, Jim, Jim, I am sick. Uh, 
Uh, and he started making noises that sounded like the vomiting of a cat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff told James that he had been sick under his bed, which was true. There was apparently some puke under there, which contained carrots. Jeff confessed that he had gotten into a cottage some eight miles away and eaten all the food in the home, including carrots. Sometimes Jeff would even get sick uh, in other ways, including a recurring cough that spurred him to tell James, Jim, I have a goddamn cough. I have a hell of a cold. You will have to get me something. After the did, break... Wait, did Jim get him cough medicine? No, he was like, bro, what? I don't even know what to get you. But after the break, we'll visit the Irvings with a variety of paranormal investigators and get the professional opinion on whether Jeff was a supernatural phenomenon or just one big hoax. This little girl's taking her family for a ride. I'm sick. I'm sick. From the moment when Charlie first encountered them in Berkeley, the Panthers impressed and scared him. And he wasn't the type to often get scared. I, are you sure? I, I feel like he's shrimpy, but he's not frightened. But isn't like it? Isn't all that like hey, so, ah, stuff? A fe- isn't the insane game a fear response? Of course. Well, it's an intimidation tactic to intimidate people to back off. But I think it all sort of ended up in this weird cycle of what's real and what's not. Is hey. this me now? You know? Hey, you scared? Look, I peed on myself. I'm wet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Apparently, Gary thought that he had some potential, this Charlie Manson. And, um, he, you know, Charlie could see his dreams right there, within arm's reach, about to be realized. And true to Charlie form, he screwed it up for himself almost immediately. The session was a disaster. Charlie hated the studio and the equipment, and he yelled at the engineers and the producers. Nothing from the session made Stromberg feel Charlie deserved a recording contract. You know what I'm trying to do here? This is the Sphinx, man. This is the Sphinx and I'm the riddle. Where's the answer? What do you think about your son-in-law right now, Dad? Um, strange. <laughs> strange. Uh, I, I, I think he's maybe had too many Mai Tais here out on... Uh, oh, that, that weird Duchess out on, out on Long Island, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Harry Melcher's final, final, super final rejection of Charlie Manson began on May 18th, 1969. So last week, Charlie had that whole party for Terry where Terry was going to come out and hear him play. And he didn't show up. And he had the, the girls holding fla- throwing flower petals and a banner and everything. Yeah, it was real embarrassing really for Charlie. Really cringy stuff for Charlie. That wasn't the end of it. He hasn't taken the hint yet. He still has some kind of hope, I guess. In a weird Charlie Manson sort of way. He thinks, oh, that guy probably just forgot. I think he was willing to overlook it for the promise of stardom, which he just knew was going to be the end game once Terry finally just, you know, understood what he needed to do. So after the humiliating no-show, Terry finally made good on his word and arrived at the ranch to hear Charlie play. And Charlie did. Quote, taking Charlie aside, Terry said polite things about several songs being interesting. He knew a guy, Mike Deasy, who, besides being a great session guitarist, had his own recording van and liked going on site to record Indian tribal music. Melcher said that he'd come back with Deasy, who might be interested in what Charlie was doing. Meanwhile, he gave Charlie 50 bucks, 
all the cash he had with him to buy hay for the ranch horses or whatever the family needed. So kind of like a, a, a pity 50, if you will. Melcher left immediately after handing over the money. The family gathered around Charlie. What did Melcher say? Didn't Charlie get his record deal? Charlie had to tell his followers something, so he announced that Terry Melcher had given him money. Charlie made sure that the family thought it was in the nature of a signing bonus. Yeah, $50 signing bonus. Yeah. Yeah, and he gave me this uh, this dead skunk, too. Look at this. <laughs> the ploy worked. So far as Charlie's followers were concerned, the audition had been a tremendous success, as of course it had to be, since he was infallible. Terry Melcher left Spawn Ranch that day, feeling certain that Charlie Manson had nothing to offer musically. And I mean, for like in any cult situation, these people have given up every, which is whatever lives they had to commit themselves fully to the idea of this guy at this point. Mm -hmm. And you hate admitting you're wrong, especially when you've bet everything. Mm -hmm. And so any uh, opportunity to continue believing, you'll just, you'll just keep taking. So yeah, $50 signing bonus. Sure. I believe it. Now, Melcher really did talk to this guy, Mike Deasy, and they agreed to go to Spawn on June 6th. So Charlie had almost three weeks to build up his hopes yet again. And during those three weeks, Charlie put everyone back to work on Helter Skelter. The men arrived on June 6th. Je uh, Greg Jacobson was with them. Charlie performed his songs. And, quote, in a spectacularly wrong-headed attempt at hospitality, someone slipped Deasy LSD, and he suffered a horrendously bad trip. Melcher and Jacobson had to get him home, and as they guided him toward their car, with Charlie walking hopefully alongside them, and the rest of the family trailing along behind. <laughs> so did you like it, man? Hey, what would you think of that last one? So I call it fecal disaster. Veteran Hollywood stuntman Randy Starr, who often hung out at Spawn, staggered up. He was dressed in all black, belligerently drunk, and waving an old-fashioned six-gun. Like Yosemite Sam <laughs> is coming out of yes. the... Uh... Charlie, faced with the end of his rock star dreams, screeched at Randy, Don't draw on me, motherfucker! And began, as Jacobson recalled, to beat the shit out of Star right in front of us. <laughs> Melcher was disgusted. I love how that almost plays out as if this is something that happens all the time. Like, I've, I've told you, don't draw on me, motherfucker. <laughs> right. But uh, even here in Connecticut, and again, this isn't the, the area we would maybe associate most with Bigfoots, but even here in Connecticut, we have legends going back into the 19th century at least uh, with stories of wild men and ape men in the woods. Mm. And it was in the CT Insider that I found. By the way, this was linked through, um, what was it? The Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, BFRO. Okay, yeah, the BFRO, yep. Um, a BFRO Connecticut page linked me to this uh, CT Insider article, but with a tone of like... Um, with a tone of, of like... This so-called journal, this I, oh, they call him a citified journalist. Oh, fake news. They're, they're claiming fake news. Okay, oh, no. uh, the, the citified journalist, and and they say that he's um 
you know, like basically say that he's being snobby when he when he points out there's no evidence for for, for Bigfoot stuff. But they go, but he these are it's a good repository of sources in spite of himself or, or something like that. So read carefully at your own. this liberal. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this cuck. So they uh, they said. <laughs> So they sent me to uh, uh, the Connecticut Insider and the Winstead Evening Citizen way back on August 27, 1895, reported that the town selectman of Winstead, Riley Smith, described in the paper as a man of, quote, undoubted pluck and nerve who talks but little. Hmm. So strong, silent type, un- unrattleable. Hmm. This man claimed to the Winstead Evening Citizen that he saw a large man, stark naked and covered with hair all over his body, run out of a clump of bushes. Uh, Smith, and remember, it's a town selectman. This is a uh, a reputable source. He said he'd been out picking blueberries with his loyal bulldog, Ned. How quaint. How quaint. I love Ned. And Ned was in the bushes. I don't know how a bulldog helps with picking blueberries particularly. They don't... By being cute, It's not a pig... They can't pick. My dog doesn't even like blueberries. <laughs> maybe maybe it's like like pigs that snuffle for truffles and like they're just I don't know. This is good. And- yeah, he's a berry <laughs> hound. This is good. I like this. Huckleberry hound. Um, <laughs> Ned was off in the brush looking for blueberries or whatever it is he was there to do. Um, <laughs> he finds them and he just points, right? Um, <laughs> And Ned came over crying and shaking with his tail between his legs, something having freaked the hell out of him in the woods. Oh, no. And then behind the dog, said Riley Smith, came sprinting this nude, hair-covered man. Sorry, that's my Uncle Vinny. I will (laughs) tell him to chill out. Well, when your Uncle Vinny saw Riley Smith, Smith said he cried out (laughs) and ran off the other direction. Okay. Uh, Smith said well, both yeah. both he and Ned were too stunned to react. <laughs> but he described him as a wild, hairy man of the woods, about six feet in height. He said, the man's hair was black and hung down long on his shoulders, and his body was thickly covered with black hair. The man was remarkably agile, and to all appearance was a muscular, brawny man. A man against whom any ordinary man would stand little chance. <laughs> um, so he looked like a tough guy. He didn't look like someone <laughs> Riley Smith wanted to get started with. Uh, and- the, the the blueberry picking guy who was <laughs> <head-wrecked> <laughs> dog. He's a town selectman. He's a man of authority in this community. <laughs> okay. I do appreciate that there is a thread of berry picking throughout these Bigfoot stories. There was a, a berry picking one in, in New York. We have berry picking here. There was a berry picking. Wasn't you just said at the top, right? That there's a berry picking out west. Apparently, Bigfoot, big berry fan. Now, I wonder. I wonder if he'd be less threatened if Bigfoot was if the if the, the man was wearing pants. That's true. Mm. Had Bigfoot been wearing trousers? If there was no trousers, we'd be like, oh, he maybe I can take him in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> he was pretty focused on the nudity part. The nudity. Well, part. Maybe, yeah, he was, maybe what was whatever was yeah. going on was like, you know what? I I can't handle this. I can't handle this. <laughs> the Twilight vampires are much more in line with the Fey folklore than they are with actual vampire folklore. They seem to, I don't know if this is from the book or just the silly, silly movies. Not the books aren't silly, um, but they like turn into stone well, when they die. Yeah, well, they're basically stone the whole time. 
like their texture changes. There's a, there's a lot that I don't like about the mythology of the Twilight vampires. I think there's some interesting elements that she pulled into it, but some of the things that were incorporated just makes no sense to me. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but uh, could you very quickly share with our listeners how Edward had one in the chamber and that's why he got uh, Bella <laughs> pregnant? I guess I just shared it. Okay, but it's important. So <laughs> I came across a TikTok, okay? And apparently there's a bunch of Twilight lore that is not described in the books and it is not described in the movies, but is shared in like the illustrated guide or whatever. So it's very similar to a star Wars situation. It's very similar to JK Rowling getting on Twitter and saying wizards used to disapparate their shit. Yeah. Among other things out of she their says robes. on Twitter. Well, yeah. Um, that was the best thing she said on Twitter. <laughs> yes. So, Oh yeah. So yes. Wizards used to shit on the floor of Hogwarts and then disapparate it. Um, well, vanish it. If you didn't know that friends, now, you know, so the twilight piece of mythology is that so everyone was wondering how could edward a vampire get bella a human pregnant because vampires aren't are dead. Su- are, are dead and aren't supposed to like they've never gotten anyone pregnant except in these rare uh vampire to human times but even like vampires banging humans they're not always going to get pregnant now it, i don't know where in the illustrated guide. I don't think it says it in these words. I think there's inferences, but basically Edward is turned into a vampire when he's like 19, 18 or 19 or 17. He's a teenager. He's a, he's an older teenager boy. When it would have been appropriate for him to be in high school. Yes. In the early 1900s, he has influenza, I think. And Carlisle, the doctor vampire turns him when he's dying. So, the premise is how did vamp how did vampire edward get bella pregnant and apparently he cuz he's famously a vampire virgin after he turns into a vampire he never bangs until he marries bella and they have sacred marital sex and also doesn't masturbate well apparently because it, i don't even know how to say this I, he, I he had it. never he had never discharged his fluids in that way, even from his death. And so, like you said, Sean, he literally still had one in the chamber that was like his original human sperm. And so, when he finally had sex and and uh, you know did that for the first time ever, including masturbation. Um, he got Bella pregnant because he had one in the chamber from his human years over a century before, like a puff of dust. I don't like that mythology. <laughs> <laughs> On the day of September 27th, 1888, the Central News Agency received a letter, a letter postmarked September 25th and addressed to the boss not bruce springsteen this is going right to the top (laughs) the letter inside the envelope was two pages long written in red ink and contained several spelling errors sean would you mind reading the contents of the letter for our listeners oh uh certainly hold on just a second oh boy dear boss I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. 
I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down <laughs> on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with me funny little games. Hilarious. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with. But it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fitting off, I hope. <laughs> the next job I do, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work than give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get the chance. Good luck. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Uh, don't mind me giving the trade name. <laughs> P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the rink red ink off me hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha <laughs> ha. Saucy Jackie. He didn't write Saucy Jackie at the end. But yes, he did write ha ha a couple times, which is like him writing LOL in there. It's very strange. Ha <laughs> ha. Due to its heading, this missive would become notoriously known as the Dear Boss Letter. <laughs> Caroline, we've got several more, at least four or five more suspects to go here. And um, would you say they're going to get more or less far-fetched from here? Yes. <laughs> it's really, it's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. But let's jump back in with the story of another contemporary police suspect, Francis Tumblety. Francis. Now, his name makes him sound like he's a cuddly cartoon bear of some sort. But Tumblety was actually an Irish-born quack doctor who made his way to America with his family a few years after his birth in 1833. Tumblety moved all over America peddling his patent medicines like Tumblety's Pimple Destroyer and was even arrested in 1865 in St. Louis for alleged complicity in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, which I really did not think would figure into this episode. No, we were just talking about uh, uh, Honest Abe's murder early t earlier today. As we do. As we do. Uh, what role did Mr. Tumblety play? Well, the police apparently believed he was an associate of David Harold, who had been captured with John Wilkes Booth. Tumblety denied any association, and there was no real evidence, so he was released. He was also later arrested in New Orleans in 1881 for pickpocketing. So. Okay, so that's, I don't see a clear line to ripping from pickpocketing well tumblety apparently enjoyed proclaiming his hatred for all women but especially <laughs> sex workers okay yeah so so in what way was he different from every man in Whitechapel <laughs> in uh, uh 1888 he blamed his misogyny on a failed previous marriage to a prostitute and when he lived in washington dc he proudly displayed his collection of uteruses preserved in jars to his guests at an all-male dinner dinner party boasting that they came from every class of woman um okay so that's alarming red flag <laughs> 
Tumblety visited Europe several times over the years. In the 1996 book Jack the Ripper, First American Serial Killer, Stuart Evans and Paul Ganey would provide evidence that Tumblety was a temporary resident in a Whitechapel boarding house during the Jack the Ripper murders, and they pieced together a case suggesting that he was the culprit. Was he was he there for all three months of this story? That I'm not entirely sure. I wasn't able to get a hold of this particular book. Um, but he was arrested by Metropolitan Police on November 7th, 1888. So he was there two days before the murder of Mary Kelly on charges of gross indecency for being caught engaging in a homosexual encounter. Boy, and when you're grossly indecent in Whitechapel? Well, it was because the the encounter was was homosexual, yeah. He apparently put up the bail of 300 pounds, equivalent to about 36,000 pounds today. And knowing Scotland Yard was now interested in him in connection to the Whitechapel murders, fled to France on November 20th and returned to the States on the 24th. Now, I don't know if he was already out on bail by Mary Kelly's murder, but it is an interesting possibility that he was around and could have, you know, committed that last crime. And I'm not sure what prompted Scotland Yard's interest in him specifically, besides being a doctor. But, you know, the the crime, quote unquote, of homosexuality is very different than what the Ripper had been up to. As is the pickpocketing, frankly. Uh, Well, more criminal than the the homosexuality, (laughs) certainly. But, uh, you know, again, it's a far cry from murder. I'm assuming that anyone that was arrested or put in, a, in an asylum at this point that had any sort of medical background was sort of being flagged because that's that was their main thing is that they thought this guy who was Jack the Ripper had a medical background. Hey, did he say where he got the uteruses? Not in that case, no. Mm, don't love that. Interestingly, Tumblety's arrest was reported in the New York Times as being connected to the Ripper murders. This just in, weirdo is weirder than we thought. <laughs> Tumblety would evade extradition and eventually died in St. Louis in 1903. It has been noted that his appearance and older age did not match any of the description given by witnesses who had seen mysterious men with the victims before their deaths. And given his relatively tall height at 5'10 and enormous mustache, he probably would have been conspicuous, but who knows? Oh, dear. Next, we have. That's how I picture a tumble tea. Sure. Well, that's what I said. He's like a cartoon bear. Next, we have Dr. Thomas Neil Cream, who has a name that just makes me very uncomfortable. Yes, Dr. Cream at your service. Oh, my God, he has Jack's voice. Cream was born in Scotland in 1850 and would eventually become known as the Lambeth Poisoner. Again, this is the wrong MO, but uh, I'll hear you out, Caroline. Yeah, Cream was a serial killer along with being a doctor who targeted mostly lower class women and sex workers seeking abortions by poisoning them poisoning them with strychnine. Strychnine? Strychnine. Strychnine? Uh, over the period of 18... 18- 81, I believe, to 1892 in three different countries. So I think there was 10 people he killed altogether. But before that, Cream was raised in Canada, had his postgraduate training in London, and then returned to North America to practice as a physician. Here he met Flora Brooks in 1876, and she became a few, uh, 
she became pregnant a few months later after a promise of marriage from Cream. He attempted to perform an abortion on her, but failed, leaving her severely ill. He then attempted to escape to Montreal, but was caught by Brooks's father, who forced him to return and marry her. This is very grim. Yes. Were the poisonings actual murders, or were they like accidental results of bad surgeries? We're getting there soon, but they are murders. Um, So the day after the wedding, Cream returned to England to continue his medical education and would never be heard from by the Brooks family again. And though Flora recovered from her botched abortion, she would die of consumption soon after in 1877. Over the years, Cream's specialty... uh, strangely enough, would become performing secret abortions, with a special emphasis on offering these illegal abortions to prostitutes. Several women died in his care, but that was unfortunately par for the course for these procedures at that time. His first purposeful murder, at least that we know of, was in 1881 when patient Daniel Stott died from strychnine poisoning in Illinois after cream supplied him with an alleged remedy for epilepsy. Cream attempted to blackmail the pharmacist after this, but was arrested along with Stott's wife, Julia, who had allegedly become Cream's mistress and had procured poison from him to kill her husband. Oh, this is very interesting. Very dramatic. And Daniel Stott's grave, by the way, reads, Daniel Stott died June 12, 1881, aged 61 years, poisoned by his wife and Dr. Cream. Choose petty. Choose mm-hmm. petty every time. Mm-hmm. And call out Dr. Cream. Ugh. Cream was sentenced to life imprisonment, but released in 1891 after his sentence was commuted. What? What? By whom? The governor, after a bribe from his brother. But you'll notice that Cream was in jail during the Ripper murders then, right? Um, Yes. Uh, Cream did move to London in 1891, where he began poisoning sex workers to induce their deaths. And he was eventually arrested in 1892, found guilty, and sentenced to death. So he did a separate string of Whitechapel murders. Yes, and he was hanged at Newgate Prison on November 15th, 1892. So why is there the theory that Cream was the Ripper if he wasn't even present in Whitechapel during the murders? Great question. (sighs) This is going to be weird and dumb. But apparently, hangman James Billington alleged that Cream's last words on the scaffold were, I am Jack the... So I guess he was maybe <laughs> maybe interrupted by like a sudden drop before he could finish the sentence. Jack the what? Jack, you're Jack the what? Police officials and execution attendees made no mention of these words, but perhaps Billington was the only one who could hear him because he was the hangman he was closest to him. I am dead, Cooper. Ripperologist Donald Bell speculated that Cream had bribed officials and had been let out of prison before his official release, which is not... Too crazy, because he was bribed to be released when he was anyway. And Sir Edward Marshall Hall suspected that Cream's prison term had been served by a lookalike in his place. Well, okay, now we're getting into William Shears Campbell territory. Yeah, it must be said that these possibilities are very unlikely and contradict all known evidence given by the Illinois <laughs> authorities, newspapers of the time, Cream's solicitors, Cream's family, and Cream himself. One biographer suggested that Cream was so frightened on the scaffold that he had lost control of his bodily functions and had stammered, um, I am ejaculating, which Billington could have mistaken for I am Jack. 
I don't think you have to go that far. I think to... that's a that's a lot to explain that. Yeah, that's a real stretch. Maybe he just <laughs> misheard anything else. Yeah, or maybe Billington made it up. I don't think we have to we have to go that far. Why would he whisper it to him? I don't buy it. I'm, I'm having one. <laughs> He's a poisoner. He targets sex workers, but the mo itself is just so different. And he was in jail. We're pretty sure he was in jail. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will, and special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of Patreon tiers over there. Uh, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ryan, Enrique, Ira, and uh, a special hello, welcome, and thank you to our newest Scary Squad members, Pete and Anna from last week, and Delaney and Theo from this week. Uh, welcome to the new members of our spooky family. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you. See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.